So this morning we are going to be talking about um, something that Chris called my bag last week, which I feel like he's kind of overselling it just a little bit. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series called You Have Heard It Said. And during this sermon series, we've provided the opportunity for um, you guys to participate. Also, uh, this, this sermon series is about working through some of the hardest questions that we continue to have and where the Bible might have this moment of like, how do we, how do we work through some of these things? You know, we've talked about past two weeks around scripture, how is scripture formed? And, and we have some assumptions that we might have and, and what do we know about how the authority of scripture works and, and all of that. And I'm just, am so grateful that we're a community that's willing to step into uh, the areas to, that, that I think for us, those of us who are mature in Christ, even in our maturity, we still struggle to find answers to. And I'm grateful that we're also a community that, that can actually say, you know, there might be answers to things that we just may not even know, but we just are unsure and we're okay to be unsure because we're still gonna remain faithful even in our doubt. Now today we're gonna be talking about heaven. Again, like Chris said, it's my bag. It is something that I, I do love talking about. Um, mainly because it's, it's actually a source of my own struggles. If I were going to say the one thing that has caused me uh, the most anxiety in life, it is my own fear of death. And it's something that I continue to have, which for some people seems like that that's surprising. I'm a pastor. I, I, my entire worldview is based off of this idea of having eternal life. And yet at the same time, it is something that I continue to struggle and have fear with. It's something that I've had to go to therapy for, for um, even having severe panic attacks around it. And I think this is another interesting part about this particular series, is to recognize that those of us who teach and those of us who facilitate in life groups, we're just like you guys, on the same road, in the same direction, following God, listening, hopeful of the journey to come but we still have questions and we're not perfect. So I, my name is Trey, I'm one of the elders here. Before we dive in, I wanna pray for us. Jesus, we love you, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your promise of goodness, your promise of a final victory. We are grateful for you, amen. Um, as Chris uh, has been doing this, this particular series, uh, we do have a place for you to continue to ask questions. Uh, I will tell you, there were several questions uh, that, that might make sense to talk about in this sermon, but heaven is a huge topic. So we are not gonna be discussing hell today. Chris said that he might touch on it over the next couple of weeks as we, we flux around some of the topics that we might do. So we're not gonna be necessarily discussing that. The other thing is, is that we, we may not get to a point of like having a conversation of what heaven is going to be like. Mainly because, uh, surprise, our Bible doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot about what it's gonna be like. We are gonna talk about some of the things that, that we can find in scripture of what it might be like. But uh, the truth is, is like some of this is really, we're just unsure of what it's gonna be like, but we do have some real clear, definite things of what it might be like. But let's talk about what our preconceptions might be. 
And the way that I want to talk through that is even through the power of music. I'm a musician. I love music. Um, and, uh, you know, music becomes a way that all, all the world ends up creating meaning and expressing our thoughts and ideas. And so we're, we're going to, what is the cultural idea of, of, of heaven, right? So I'm going to play a couple uh, of songs here as we move forward. So it could be this song. If heaven is anywhere, it's in a Okay, Blue Tacoma, California, White Magnolias. Not not sure if that's it. Uh, Certainly, Led Zeppelin had a pretty good idea of Stairway to Heaven. At least it calls back to a vision that Jacob might have had. I'll tell you right now, my dad in heaven right now, he's jamming out to this. There's no doubt. You might have grown up in the 90s. If literally your answer is like, I have no idea. No clue. Just standing in your glory, Lord. That's all I'm going to go. That's as deep as I'm going to go with my heaven theology. Or you might have this idea, which I would say much of us do. Some bright morning when this life is Good old Hank Williams. See you later. Yes, gifts are back, guys. <laughs> so one of my favorite albums of all time is actually this David Crowder album. I was a passion kid. I love passion worship music. I've been a worship pastor since I was 14 years old. And this particular album was one of those albums that I like, got to like, actually like, hear this album, which I was like, what is happening? Because if you haven't heard this album, it's, it is a concept album by David Crowder Band that came out in the late 2000s, um, uh, or the aughts, I guess is what they're called. And, and uh, the, the, the subject of this entire album, and I would suggest, like, I know that we all are now in like the Spotify era where we hop around from song to song to song. Uh, this is one of those albums, like, it still holds up, and not only that, it is an amazing theological unpacking of what does the future of God's kingdom look like in the here and in the now. And he titled it A Collision. And this was the first time I had ever thought about heaven as this collision between heaven and earth coming together, new heavens, new earth. The opening track sounds like this. Now, can anyone tell me who wrote that song originally? It is actually, and I literally planned this sermon two weeks ago, and unfortunately, it was Loretta Lynn. Everybody wants to go to who passed away this past week. And, oh my gosh, right? But nobody Come on, Loretta. Bring it home. Oh, man. I mean, I should have worn my Texas boots today. See, the thing is, is I think that oftentimes we want to think about heaven in a particular way because sometimes it's just challenging for us to even want to consider our own mortality. But the truth of scripture is that our mortality is actually invested in this incredible bigger story, which is that not only will we live forever, but we will live forever with Christ, with each other, but not somewhere else, but here. 
So this morning, we're going to talk about what is heaven, and we're also going to talk about where is heaven. What we probably won't get to is, do all dogs go to heaven? But I really want you to have this idea, if there's one thing I want you to write down, is heaven is here, not there. Now, when I was talking to my mom about my sermon a couple weeks ago, she was like, in my 60 years, I've never heard this. And it shows us a deep idea that we don't talk about God's ultimate and final plan enough. Because I believe that for the most part, us as Christians, we think about heaven as somewhere that we're going to, not necessarily God's ultimate plan of redeeming the entire world. That he's always had on his mind restoration and and recreation and resurrection. These words that we at Easter we talk about, but we don't actually insert deep into our faith enough. But in order to do that, we have to lay a really important work around establishing this concept known as the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is, is, this, is this ongoing narrative that starts from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And I think part of the reason why we don't understand it is, is we have oftentimes, kind of a little bit of what Chris has talked about over the past couple of weeks, is we, we shrink scripture down to these little moments that fit on coffee cups, or we devotionally engage it on a particular quiet time, but we don't actually take the whole breadth of scripture to understand the meta narrative, the deeper story that's happening. So in the beginning, Genesis 1, we have this first chapter of the Bible, and like Chris talked about last week, is is what is the purpose of this particular chapter? So many of us point to it as how God created the world, where I would submit that that's not the intention of that chapter, but rather it's a very specific genre of scripture known as temple literature. Now, if you've never knew that, that scripture is, is a collection of a bunch of genres, guess what? It is. And in the same way that you might take Loretta Lynn's Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven song or a love letter that you wrote to your wife or husband or a, a storybook that, that, that you might be reading or a, uh, a history that you might be reading, in all those different ways you interpret in different ways. There's different ways to understand the author's intent. And in temple literature, it's no different. And in the Bible, we have different genres. In temple literature specifically, it is about God's sovereignty over all things. And the picture that we need to have in our mind when we read Genesis 1 is not necessarily how God created the world, but rather to what purpose did he create the world? And that is to establish a kingdom in the cosmos that he declares is good, that we don't declare as good, but he declares good. And he declares it perfect. And at the end of Genesis 1, we get this transition little paragraph. And and you have this, uh, you have, uh, it's in Genesis 2, which we talked a little bit about, that sometimes chapters get all wonky in the way that it creates transitions, where you almost have a second creation story that happens in Genesis 2, but we get the wrap-up of of Genesis 1 in Genesis 1 and 2, and it says, thus the heavens and earth were finished. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, my son Kai, um, 
He, he's, he's sweet. Um, and when he does something that is uh, really difficult or challenging for him, which sometimes could just be walking upstairs, um, he'll get up to the top of the stairs and go, phew. I think sometimes we get a picture of God in this moment after seven days of work, and he says, But I think that's the wrong picture. If God is the God who can literally take dust and form us, or with his very word, create the heavens. Creation is not something that tires our God out. But rather, we get this picture in Hebrews, and the whole book of Hebrews is talking about what is Jesus doing now, and, and where is he now, and, and how do we trust in the goodness of God in the midst of persecution, and all these things, and, and how does our story matter? Is that what we know to be true in Genesis 2 should be some of our greatest hope, is what does God do after he creates everything? Is he sits down as the king and ruler over all things. That rather, Genesis 1 is not necessarily about how the world came to be, but rather that God is the ruler and king over everything. There is no expanse to the cosmos. I don't care how many stars that the James Webb telescope finds. He even has dominion over that. He has dominion over time in such an incredible way that we can actually look back with this telescope and see billions of years, billions of years, and God was still there, and we keep being surprised that something's there because God is and always will be over all things. He is sovereign. He rules all. This is a God that is huge, and what he says in the beginning of creation is that it is good and that it's perfect. But we know that's not the end of the story. It quickly changes in Genesis 3, where eventually Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, are no longer in God's presence. And the psalmists deal with this, of asking, okay, then where is God now if, he, if, if we, he no longer resides in us? Well, he's still doing the same thing that he was doing. It's just in a separated sort of way. Psalm 11, 4 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. That God still is doing his act. He still is over all things. He just does not necessarily dwell in us at this point in time. In fact, what they have is a recreated temple, which is the one place in which God does dwell, where they have to mediate and, and have priests to, to, to atone for their sins in order for God to dwell in the presence. And, and, and that is what they end up creating in the beginning of, in the Old Testament, because God rules from his temple in heaven, but there's this one moment, this one place where God continues to dwell with his people, and that is in this temple. And the people of the Jewish faith would, would have this mindset of understanding that here's the thing. What is God doing? What is his ultimate plan? His ultimate plan is to completely take the world through Israel being this chosen people that he is king over. And eventually there will be a day when the Messiah will come and it will, it will come in, it will be ushered in and rule over all of earth. And there will be a time and place when heaven and earth come back together. This was a hope of the Jewish people. So in the gospels, when Jesus comes into the scene, he inaugurates with ministry in Mark 1:15, and he says, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, 
okay, if the kingdom of God always is and always will be, then what is he trying? Of course it is, right? That's where God is, his kingdom, his dominion, what he reigns over, it's always is what it is. This is Jesus saying that this moment that you are hoping for and waiting for, for heaven coming back to earth, it's happening. And it is time to repent and believe in this good news. Now, Matthew changes this a little bit. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. Now, why is he making these two things synonymous? Well, first is, is Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. And for, for Jews, write, even writing the name of God would be a, a very big distraction. So he's, he's making a choice to substitute uh, Mark's language here and, and put in the word heaven instead. But it's important to realize that his next best way to describe what the kingdom looks like is again, heaven. The thing in which was separated. So before we can even have an adequate idea of what heaven is, is we have to remember this, is that heaven and earth at one point in time were together. They were created together. And that in the garden, we have this picture of God walking with his, with his people. And we know that in that, all of that was declared perfect and good, but then eventually sin enters into the world through our choice and pursuance of our own ideas to create our own realm, our own kingdom. But God always intended to have a way to bring these two things back together. And we get glimpses through scripture on when that happens, where the veil between heaven and earth is very thin. And one of those places is the temple. But the most shocking thing is See, the Jews, they, they thought that if Jesus was this person, he would come in as this victorious king and he would just ransack everything. Because in their mind is, is that if the kingdom of man is going to be replaced with the kingdom of God, it means that the whole world, not just this little localized Israel, it's the whole world would fall under the rule of God. And in their context, that's Rome at this moment. And they know how mighty Rome is. They need a militant leader that's going to usher this in. So that's the reason why as Jesus coming into Jerusalem at the time, they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, the king is here. That's what they're saying. And to be shocked by the end of it, that God uses the cross as a means for heaven and earth to come back together would just absolutely turn over the apple cart. That... Wait, so the, the Messiah comes to die? I don't, I don't understand. This makes no sense. It's not what we thought it was going to be. And yet I do believe that us as Christians, sometimes when we think about heaven, this is about where our thoughts end, is that we get to live forever with God somewhere. And we miss the bigger part of this story where Jesus himself in John 2, after pushing everybody out of God's temple, they ask him, what, why are you doing this? What sign is it here? And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I love it. John's like, hey, just, I need to help you out here. He's talking about this 
the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Because here's the thing, throughout scripture, it is very clear that this was God's intended goal. It wasn't necessarily that, that all of a sudden that in this time that Israel would just be the, 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 the reigning nation of the, of the world. But rather, God has a bigger plan than that. And it's to deal with sin and death for the final time. And it's also to usher in a new heavens and new earth. But how is he going to do that? Well, in saying this, Jesus his indwelling within us is a part of this beautiful recreation event. Paul says this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroy, destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You see, the spirit of God dwelled in this particular temple the, that, that he did tell us to build, but in Christ, Christ now indwells in us the body. So if there is a truth that we're going to need to understand as we think about heaven, is that heaven is already here. And it's indwelled in the spirit of Christ in your body, in his body, the church. That we actually can taste heaven. And it is not a white magnolia in someone's hair. It's not a stairway to heaven, wicked guitar solo. But it is about the body submitting our lives to Christ to the transformation of sanctification where we get glimpses of what the kingdom life is gonna look like eventually. So if there's a book that I would suggest around this, it is this book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. I love N.T. Wright. Um, he's, he's an amazing New Testament author. Um, it is actually basically this book, which is like 400 pages long, is the executive summary of his like 3,000 page book on the resurrection. Um, this is pretty approachable, but it's still pretty nerdy. Um, so I have a couple sections that I do wanna read out of it though. Um, but he says this, and I think this just really summarizes this particular point. It's on page 201. The normal Christian understanding of kingdom, especially of kingdom of heaven, is simply mistaken. God's kingdom and kingdom of heaven mean the same thing. The sovereign rule of God, that is the rule of heaven, of the one who lives in heaven, which according to Jesus was and is breaking into the present world to earth. That is what Jesus taught us to pray for. The kingdom of heaven has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the point of the gospels, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together with Acts, is that this has already begun. You see, the hope of heaven is not a future hope. It's actually a hope that we get to participate in now. And it should change our theology. It should change how we act in the world. But if heaven is here and not there, then here's the question, how did we get to here? How did we get to this point in which we thought that we would be flying baby-winged angels in some far-off place? Fancy word, Christo, Christ, Christoplatoism. In other words, a lot of our influence of heaven has come from a Platonic type of philosophy where the body and soul are actually separated. 
However, if we look back to the early church, this is uh, Thessaloniki, um, where um, uh, the, the book of Thessalonians was actually written to you. If we actually look back, we will be very clear that they did not see this separation between body and soul or going to another place. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this, we declare to you a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, what I'm about is this change in state between what is earth now and what earth will become. It's not about getting up on the clouds and like, you know, having some awesome, like, I don't know, I always thought the clouds felt like cotton. You're throwing cotton around. That, that's, not, that's not what heaven is going to look like, but rather it's going to be here, placed or something. And, and I'm going to be honest, scripture just doesn't give us a lot of information about what happens when we die first. There's just not a lot of scripture that tells us. Paul in this text talks about as being fallen asleep. In Luke 23, 43, we hear Jesus saying and talking about paradise. Paradise is a, is a Persian word that talks about this idea of a walled park or garden. Luke 16 shows us in, in a, at least a, a narrative that Jesus uses, a parable that he uses about someone named Lazarus, Lazarus that, that angels are there. Revelation 6, 9 tells us that the slain are there, and I think this particular verse in Thessalonians makes sense as well, that they are. Revelation 19 and 8 talk about animals being there, so yeah, I think our dogs are going to be in heaven, okay? Yep, and we can talk about that later, but I hope so, and God likes the joy of my heart, so we're just going to say that it is. <laughs> Philippians 1, 23, we see Paul saying that he'd rather be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, present uh, that Paul says that, that we are going to be present with him, or Paul hopes to be present with him. And then uh, in Hebrews, we have this picture of Christ dwelling there. What can I tell you about present heaven? In other words, the life after death. I can tell you pretty much what's listed there. I can tell you that Christ is there. I can tell you that my dad, who's been in heaven since uh, almost a year ago, is, yes, he's with Christ. But this is what I can tell you assuredly. It is not the point. Which is hard hard for us, because our grief, we want to know that our loved ones and those we love are cared for. But sometimes we care that care and that grief it shrouds the real beautiful hope that we actually have is there will be one day where none of us will actually taste death. And that death will be dealt with finally. That God's plan always was resurrection, redemption, recreation, and restoration. 
Because if heaven is just there, we miss this idea that God's full plan was restoration, that heaven is here, not there. That actually we could be comfortable in the present reality of just being status quo. If we didn't believe that heaven eventually is going to be something that is recreated here, because we could say, okay, yeah, well, then we just go to another place or, or oh, well, you know, and hopefully we all can go there. We'll all fly away. And, and, and this is just how it is. And our real hope is just about living after death. And that's, that's really what our real hope is. But that is not what the Bible tells us. Our real hope is this, is that we will have resurrected physical bodies that our bodies will rise out of the grave. That we won't just exist somewhere else, but literally God is saying, we will rise out of the grave and here in this place, we will have dominion as he always intended it. That there will be new earth, that sin will eventually one day be forever removed. We don't have to be the Christians anymore in this, in this, in this time where it's just like, oh man, I just wish sin didn't impact the world. There is going to be a time when sin does not impact the world. There is going to be a time when death is forever removed. There's going to be a time when Jesus reigns and we get to be co-heirs. There will be a time where creation and mankind is restored to perfection. There will be a time in your heart as 30-somethings and early 40-somethings where you're seeking purpose in your life where you won't feel that ever again. Because God's full manifestation of his purpose in you will be revealed. And guess what? What are we going to do in heaven? Like I said, we're not going to get so deep into that. But here's the thing. You're going to work. If we look at Genesis 1 and 2, like it's very clear that, that God calls us into being co-heirs and also just actually like doing stuff for his kingdom. I think you're going to work. I think we're going to have jobs. I think we're going to have friends and family. I think that all the things that make this life echoes of what Eden was will be redeemed, but it will be redeemed in a way that will be very different than what we ever thought it would to be. So, if heaven is here and not there, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? So, if heaven is here, not there, then it should be evidenced by your sanctification. In other words, if we really do believe this verse, this is not just this verse that Paul's talking about here uh, in, 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 uh, in Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It legitimately means that you are experiencing the resurrection now. You know, Romans Road, you know, in, in Romans, you know, five, six, seven, eight, I don't remember how far the road goes, but here, here's the thing. The truth of the matter is, is that when Paul says legitimately, you were died, buried, and risen, that you are a resurrected people now, which means that you are to be about the kingdom now. That our future hope is secured. We know that is true, but it means that we have to be resurrected people now. If there's one thing that I believe about the Christian faith right now is it is so critical for us to learn how to live with conviction again. And not listen to what other people tell us, what the gospel is, what the Bible does, what we're supposed to know, that we come together as a community of God and we recognize that the new heavens and new earth has been gifted to us and we are to be resurrected kingdom people now that focus on God's word because that is the thing that is assured in our life. He's given us the community of God and the belief that he's given it to us for our edification. 
He's given us the community of God so that we would be people that live with full hope and full of grace and full of Christ. And let me tell you, the rhetoric of most Christian talk today is not full of hope, and it's not full of grace, and it is not full of Christ. I was like, I was in the barbershop the other day, and they're like, well, are you this person or this, you know, are you this for this person or that person? I was like, I ain't for any of them. I'm for the kingdom of God. That's what I'm for. And because of that, our hope should be supernatural. Look, I have anxiety. You know, Russia and bombs, I mean, it does. But God calls us into a supernatural life. Because, I mean, get this. I just wish we could really understand this reality. The risen Christ dwells in you. The hope of a thousands and thousands of years dwells in you. I sacrifice that every day, that truth. I do. I'm wayward. I'm sinful. But God, would you just make us understand that heaven dwells in us? We no longer need a mediator. You are doing that every single moment for us as the risen and ascended king. And because of that, we should have supernatural hope. We should have hope that is for a greater thing than just going off and leaving this place. So if heaven is here and not there, then we need to put that hope in the resurrection. I go to funerals. It's part of getting older and it's a part of being a pastor. How many funerals is it about? Oh, he's just in a better place. Now, it's okay. We deal, we have to, we have to work with our grief. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't grieve. And honestly, there is a promise to that. I do believe that we are with Christ after we, after we move on from here. But how often do we hear at funerals the real genuine hope is, my, like, here's the thing. My dad is literally going to one day walk from his grave. That's the real hope. I can, hope, I can be grateful that he's with Christ. That's great, and I'm glad he's doing it, and I cannot believe the jokes that they're telling. But the real hope is that I'm going to walk out of the grave, my dad's going to walk out of the grave, my mom, my sister, that one day I'm going to see my grandfather again. And not only is it that it's the hope that like to see them again, but we're going to see them in different ways. And then we'll be able to look at each other and say, let's really get to work and do what God really called us to do. That's to worship him and to glorify him. I don't think heaven's gonna be a giant worship service for all of eternity. As someone who worked in church production, I really hope for our sake that it is not that. But rather, we're gonna find true meaning and purpose because we will commune with God. And that's the greater hope of heaven. In, uh, in his book on page 169, he. And T. Wright says, the ultimate destination once more, it's not going to heaven when you die, but being bodily raised into the transformed glorious likeness of Christ. 
The point of all this is not, of course, merely our own happy future, important though it is, but the glory of God as we come fully to reflect his image. Thus, if we want to speak of going to heaven when we die, we should be clear that this represents the first and far less important stage of a two-stage process. Resurrection isn't life after death. It is the life after life after death. Now, that leaves us with lots of questions. I mean, we could literally be here all day to answer some of the questions that you guys submitted. And I told Chris today, I was like, I I don't know what to do except to do our best to think about what is a better picture of what heaven means in our lives. And many of the questions that you submitted are ones that I'm sure are rooted in deep grief, challenges around even just considering like those of us who are not in Christ, what happens to their existence. And I want to recognize that that's hard. And I want to walk through that. That's what we as elders and staff members and and life group leaders, that's the point of the church, y'all, is to walk through those hard questions, not to have an answer, but to be present in them. So lastly, and this is my final point, is is heaven is here and not there, and it means that we need to be present here better. When we have a true picture of heaven theology, we do understand that our hope is far greater than anything we can imagine. But it also demands us to be kingdom builders now. Too often we, we go about our lives and don't recognize that if we are the true presence and manifestation of God's kingdom, it means that we have a responsibility to reclaim this world for God's kingdom. Is that complicated? You betcha, as they'd say in Minnesota. Oh yeah, you betcha. Yeah, it's tough. It's hard. But here's the thing. I believe that Christians are called to talk about the conversations of climate change and our roles and responsibility in it. God gave us creation to tend to it. We should care for his creation. I believe in politics. We are called to be involved in it. If you want to talk about a political thing, the kingdom of God is highly political all the way to a point that it was a legitimate slap in the face. But I want to recognize the, comp- the, the, the complexity of that, right? Does God care about unborn children? Yes, he does. Does God care about mothers in unbelievably hard situations? Yeah. You can't be red and blue red or blue. We had to go just down that particular dichotomy. I'm not saying you can't be a part of a political party, okay? Don't send me emails. (laughs) But what I am saying is, is that if if you cannot work through your own political view without seeing the kingdom of God first, you are woefully off track. It is dangerous because the kingdom of God does not exist for democracy. The kingdom of God exists for God's rule. That's what he exists for. And it makes it complicated. 
We need to be a part of that process. And we need to be a part of that because we need to be able to celebrate in the moments when, yes, the protection of life, that, that there are legal laws that do that, but we also need to be the church right now because here's the thing, that same possible side of the political spectrum, do you know what they're not talking about as often? I don't know, foster care, adoption care, what do we do with kids? How do we take care of mothers well? How do we take care of broken families? Where's that conversation? Sorry, soapbox. Because if we are to be kingdom people, we cannot choose sides because we have one side and that is for the kingdom of God. And we have to be desperately clear of what his kingdom is for. And it makes us and forces us to live in the gray but to live in the gray, not as like, well, I'm just gonna completely like, just let it happen. But God calls us to tend his creation well as kingdom builders now, in all different ways, in our families, in the body of Christ, to be active agents of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That our hope is not just that we go somewhere, but that heaven is here and we have a responsibility here and it will always be here because God is going to redeem the world one day.